This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, separated by a common language, examining the differences between UK and US urban fantasy. And this week, we are absolutely delighted, finally, after many technical difficulties, to welcome Heather G. Harris to our show. Hi. Um, hi, Heather. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for bearing with us long enough to actually come and talk to us. This is brilliant. Um, for those of you who don't know, Heather is an indie urban fantasy author who has, is it eight books now or nine? Um, oh, oh my goodness. You're putting me up. I've got 11 <laughs> out, but one more is going to be out next month, so I'll make it 12. Her books have been enjoying a lot of success, understandably, and it sort of comprises of a quartet originally featuring a, a private investigator with an unusual truth-detecting ability, very useful in that line of work, mm-hmm. and a trilogy set in the same universe featuring a female alpha werewolf, which is... Okay, obviously we're going to be gushing about your books, so I won't. Yeah, I'll pull myself back at the beginning, and then the original series is continuing, which is very exciting. Mm. Just full disclosure for those listening: if you haven't read the first few books, we might inadvertently venture a little bit into some spoiler territory. So just be aware of that. Yeah, we we will try not to spoil things for you, but even if we we do sort of give away a few bits and bobs accidentally, uh, don't let that discourage you from picking the books up. Um, so, Heather, <laughs> we are so happy to have here. Um, it, it, it was a kind of an interesting thing in that Jules was a big fan of your work mm. um, and so she kept saying you should you, you know telling me you should check it out you should check it out you should check it out um, and then I I got the audiobook because you have the uh, these omnibus omnibus that's right yeah yeah um, sort of audiobooks uh, so you you could get um, the, the original quartet uh, all in one audiobook and so I, I sat and I just blitzed through it yay so fast <laughs> um, and then and then just Jules and I were together like <gasps> just getting very excited and so when um, when we found out that you were actually going to come onto the show we were very very happy um, but for all of our listeners who are less familiar with you um, and with your work now um, would you mind giving us a bit of an introduction about yourself and uh, the other realm? Yeah sure um, firstly thanks very much for having me guys I'm very excited to be here just as excited as you are to have me I promise Um, A bit about myself then, I'm um, 36, I've got three kids, I've got a six-year-old, a four-year-old and a one-year-old, so I've got a busy household, Um, luckily I also have a very supportive husband, so um, that really helps. (laughs) Uh, I used to be a lawyer, so... um, in times gone by, I used to do any sort of um, negligence and I was uh, working most recently in housing disrepair negligence. So when people had council houses and stuff like that, um, mm. that weren't up to scratch, I was helping with the tenants kind of bring the council to task and make sure that they kind of made their homes livable again. So that was really um, a nice area of work to be in and you felt like you were making a really positive difference. Um, but obviously, as you can imagine, being a lawyer was quite stressful. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the cli- clients quite understandably are quite demanding because it's their home that they're in. Um, and it was just quite a stressful job managing working, you know, a, a, in a busy legal practice with having, um, young children that you wanted to be home for and you wanted to have, you know, I hated when I had to drop the oldest one at um, breakfast club and after school club and all those things. And it felt like, you know, a lot of her life I was missing out on. So um, when the kind of chance came to become a full-time author, you know, I just leapt at the chance. And um, my legal practice were actually incredibly supportive of me as well, actually. They were really um, encouraging. They were like, you know, of course you're having this success. Like, of course go and explore it and you know do your best so um they were they were very supportive which was great so a little bit about the the series um i started off with the other realm which has got jinx and she's just a an ordinary pi uh, making ends meet by kind of following um you know deadbeats having affairs and people who are kind of scamming to say that they're um they're injured and they need, um, you know, support from the government and stuff when actually they weren't and just really kind of minor stuff like that. And then she gets hired to find a missing girl who's gone missing at university. Um, and this kind of missing case just plunges her into a magical realm where magic exists and you know there's elementals and vampires and dragon shifters and werewolves and any sort of any sort of magical paranormal creature I like to chuck it in I take the kitchen sink approach to um, (laughs) magic creatures because I just um, sometimes you pick up a book and it's a vampire book and sometimes you pick up a and it's a werewolf book um and i just love everything and i love um exploring the idea that you get in urban fantasy that magic is real and it's all around us and us kind of people with no magic just can't see it and that's what the other realm is you know they're the people who haven't stepped through the portal and can't see magic and there are those ones that like us that are just ordinary bopping along in our lives so each of my books has got a central mystery um which has to be solved you know missing person and murder something like that um but then there's an overarching storyline that kind of goes through each kind of quartet or trilogy and by the Mm. end there's a nice satisfying conclusion that you find out the overriding mystery of all of the books um but yeah that's it in a nutshell really just magic magic being real who doesn't want that yeah. yeah, tell yeah, me about absolutely. it. No, I do feel like uh, <laughs> with Jinx in particular, it, it causes as many problems as it as it does <laughs> yes. solve answers for her. You yeah. haven't read the most recent three books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jules has read my latest one, and um, I'm getting some really amazing feedback, but also some. My, my readers are just like you can't end it here like you just can't end it and I'm like you keep saying that at the end of every series guys yeah <laughs> at some point I have to call it a day and they're like not yet no more, more books please more books please you have yes. to keep going <laughs> you started the supply chain you I can't know. stop it suddenly <laughs> it's good because I, I really um the reason why I went back to that series was um Jinx is um a really competent character you know she um 
She's not too stupid to live. She doesn't make silly mistakes. She is just sensible moving forward, trying to say, solve a case. And she's a, a real strong personality. Um, mm. Initially, she starts out and she's a real lone wolf. And then as the stories progress, she starts to find her kind of found family and build friends around her. Um, and I, I love that kind of exploration of her and her growing as a character. Um, and that's one of the things that I love about the books as they continue I can add more friends and more love for her which is just a really nice thing um whereas the other um protagonist in my series Lucy she um she's a werewolf and she used to be an accountant so she got dragged from her accountancy into becoming an alpha werewolf which is quite a career change (laughs) it is quite a career change for everybody (laughs) definitely one that goes on the cv (laughs) (laughs) right but i just think what i love about lucy um unlike jinx um Lucy is really good at social stuff and she's really good um, at mixing and kind of group politics and all those things and she's got a different kind of skill set um, to Jinx and what I like about Lucy which some people hate I think she's a real Marmite character um, but what I love about her is she's beautiful and she's talented and she's smart and she's quite unapologetic about it and mm. I've had a few people say you know she starts out quite shallow and she doesn't have enough flaws for my liking and I'm like I get that I get that so often characters do have to have flaws because that's a good development angle but I also wanted um someone who's successful and unapologetically so and it feels a bit to me a bit bit feminist you know i mean if i had that same character as a male it wouldn't be a problem that he had a successful um day job and Mm. that he was also really good at football and was smart do you mean it wouldn't it wouldn't be an issue that he's got all you know all three skills but i put that in a woman and people are like oh yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's the Batman argument, isn't it? Yeah. It's like everyone is fine with Bruce Wayne, the <laughs> ridiculously rich, ridiculously good looking, ridiculously capable, ridiculously smart, etc. And no one gets weird about that. Yeah. For some reason, when it's a female character. Yeah. And I, th- I think I found it really refreshing. I was just like, oh, thank God, finally, a female character who isn't going on about her body hang ups. Because yeah. I find that so boring. <laughs> And also, I want to. I want young women to pick this up and know that it's okay to be comfortable in, you know, feeling that you are skinny and that's okay. Because you know, it. I grew up and I just had a really good metabolism. I could eat, you know, pizza and chocolate and popcorn all day long and not put a pound on. Don't hate me, but that was just what I was. I was so so skinny. <laughs> um, and one of my friends was the same and she really struggled with it because people would say to her, you know, you've got a problem, you're too thin. And she'd be like, honestly, I don't, you know, it's just, it's just my metabolism, you know, don't, don't judge me for it. So it's kind of nice to have someone out there representing both sides of things. Like I want nowadays to have plus size main characters. And it's also okay to have a skinny one who's not embarrassed about it, you know? Yeah. Who people feel aren't doing enough. I mean, to be honest, that was my teens and my twenties. And it was just, it was always the comment of, are you eating enough? And the weird thing is, it is actually as intrusive as if someone says, are you eating too much kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, we just really shouldn't comment on each other's eating habits, should we? But 
that's um, I suppose that's a different kind of fish. That's my a different point, topic. We'll yeah, about that bit. but my point was <laughs> yeah. my point was I just think um, it's really refreshing for me to write a character who's unapologetically um, strong and good at a lot of stuff, and I wanted to have that representation there um, for girls to have that. You don't have to have a female character that's too stupid to live, stumbling into silly situations, you know, and just not being very bright about it all. Yeah. In one of our yeah. many episodes, we talk about characters that have what we termed too much candy. It's where someone sort of makes a darling of a character and gives them everything and then really smooths their path. But I would like to say that I found, as I said, I found Lucy really refreshing. She does technically have what we would call lots of candy. You know, she's beautiful and competent and clever, etc. And she's unapologetic about it, which is great. But she doesn't have the easiest transition into being an alpha werewolf, does she? No, no. Kind of... Although she's uh, doing well for herself, it's still a really difficult path that she's got. You know, she's not welcomed by the uh, werewolves. You know, part of the transition um, is she's had to kill the previous alpha. So obviously everybody's not warm and fuzzy because they like the previous alpha. You know, his family's around. They're not going to be warm and fuzzy towards her. Um, and then someone else is killed in the werewolf pack and she has to find out who's done it. Um and the person that got killed was kind of her biggest detractor. So it's, you know, all eyes are looking at her thinking that maybe she's done it. So it's um, a very hostile environment that she finds herself in. And again, I suppose I'm guilty again of that kind of found family element coming through, through the book. So she then has to kind of build those friendships and those bonds and start to bring people together again. Because um, I just I just love a found family. It's like one of my favourite tropes. Yeah you're, yeah, you're good company there with both of us. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yes. I think the thing that I particularly appreciate, and, and you really do get it both with Jinx and with Lucy, is that the drama isn't created so much in, you know, uh, in kind of silly, inflated ways. They both feel very grounded and realistic I mean Lucy does have a lot of candy but she's not a character that I turn around and think well this is not a believable person I know people like this yes um, you know intelligent um, socially competent beautiful successful these people do exist you know she does Um, she's actually based on a friend of mine who's like she's she's (laughs) just so she's and she's such a lovely human and she works in London in investment banking and she's you know heinously bright uh, incredibly rich very beautiful and just very lovely so like you know Lucy yeah. is basically based on my friend and I just thought she she's just real <laughs> apart from the yeah, werewolf exactly <laughs> apart from the <laughs> unless you're about to um, but um, but but yeah, but the, the characters feel realistic, and the drama is created by what's happening around them. You know, by the mysteries which you obviously which are incorporated into the story, by the the social politics, the magical politics, and it's kind of refreshing that sort of the emotional side is very is actually quite easy in terms of just the characters. Um, you know, so for example, uh, Jinx's relationship with Emery um, is lovely. Um, it's easy. There's no kind of weird sort of tension or drama sort of in that. 
because they don't you don't really need to be concentrating on them having a, a difficult will they won't they relationship mm. it's just two people who've fallen in love with each other who are you know and occasionally they do hit bumps in the road and and but that's all part of their character growth and it doesn't feel unrealistic and now this isn't me saying therefore that I I don't like a good will they won't they or that I don't like tension in relationships. oh thank I mean, god you said that I'm, <laughs> well, I'm a big fan, obviously, of Jules's books, and Jules really kind of strung me along for like a long time. But, honestly, I really didn't mean to. It's just I could not get the two. I'm just going to say something very rude. Then I could not get the two characters to go in the direction I wanted them to go to. <laughs> Sometimes characters just don't obey you. You know, you no. sit down and yeah. you think you're going to write a chapter and X, Y, and Z's going to happen, and at the end of it, you're like, wow. None of that worked. Yep. Yeah. It, it it also doesn't help that I actually started pairing them before you even intended, because Jules just sent me one paragraph of the book of book one while she was writing it, and I went, "These two characters are going to be in love, and they're going to be Endgame." And Jules was like, "What?" I'm like, "It's just new information." <laughs> seriously, that was my moment when I'm like, "Is she, is she in?" Is she in my fucking head somehow? Because seriously, I've told no one about this. I've told uh, Madeline it would be the person who I would tell when plot lines pass, but I didn't tell her. I very deliberately didn't. That's so yeah. funny. But I immediately knew. So I'm not saying that, but it, it was it, it worked very well in the other realm because um, it was just something a little bit different. It was something a bit new, um, and. Like I say, there was this sense of realism with the characters, uh, particularly given their ages as well. Um, and I think that is, you know, another element in that, you know, these are these are slightly older sort of women. I say older women. That's they're not older women. Uh, but what I mean <laughs> is that a lot of the time you get sort of urban fantasies, and they are very much in their kind of very early twenties and things like that. Um, I think it's just there's an immaturity sometimes, isn't there? Yeah. And I just didn't want that with mine. Yeah, it's not necessarily immature, but I know what you mean, as in, like, it's a different sort of point in their life where they are out kind of, you know, getting with lots of people or out doing X, Y, Z, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's just at the point of their life that they're in. Whereas with Jinx and, and Lucy... Um, you, sorry, my brain just went a bit kind of silly there. Uh, but with, yeah, with Jinx and Lucy, um, they have kind of, they've done that stage and they're still enjoying life. Um, but they are now at the kind of, well, we're, we're sort of, we're quite successful in our businesses. We're sort of actually, you know, quite, um, you know, they feel quite settled. And then as part of the story, it's like, we're settling into the business, we're doing okay. And then it's like, and now magic and just upends everything. <laughs> <laughs> and they hit the ground running. And I just really appreciated that. Yeah. I think that's something that I do try and chuck quite a lot of realism in. And I think sometimes a lot of the advice in writing um, podcasts and things like that can be um, cut out the everyday stuff and just leave the drama um mm. and i didn't and i guess that was because when i started out i didn't know that that was one of the pieces of advice but um you have um lucy doing her kind of skincare regime you know she always removes her weight makeup and she does um her moisturizer and her 
you know toning and all that sort of stuff and um one of my fans emailed me and was like thanks to lucy's skincare regime i've started taking care of my skin and i really just wanted to thank you for that and it just it's it's so funny that sometimes these really kind of basic things that I've put in is actually what resonates with people. They yeah. like seeing um, Emery and Jinx having a, a bacon butty in the morning before they start their day and stuff like that. And, you know, the, my readers always joke about how often I put bacon into my stories. <laughs> <laughs> a Brit thing I'm again. slip it in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but I think sometimes mixing in that every day is part of what's made it um, so successful and having those slow down moments where they're just ordinary people really gets people to connect yeah I agree yeah, I mean I completely agree I think um, obviously when we get into the discussion a bit later it's it's something that we'll notice with certain other urban fantasy series obviously no slurs or anything mm. but basically that they just maintain a frenetic pace all the way through and sometimes mm. you just want to stop and breathe mm. and um, you know I think when people just do this completely frenetic pace all the way through, you don't necessarily get to know the characters. So that if you are a reader who is very character centric or, you know, what have you, you, you need to connect with the characters to enjoy the story, then you, mm-hmm. you just don't get that breathing room and um, putting in those things, as you say, I mean, we're both big proponents for being in those, those like quiet moments as well. Mm. Yeah. Although I think I'm going to start getting comments on how many times, you know, tea comes up at a certain point. <laughs> I, I just think it's appropriate, honestly. <laughs> I get reviews that say, do we need to have as much tea? <laughs> does tea really solve everything? Yes. Yes, yes, yes it, it does. does. Yes, yes it does. we do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's realistic. It's Again, realistic. Um, <laughs> Especially if you're in the UK, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's gonna... Yeah, and, and I think that it actually, this is the perfect segue into the conversation, which is that I do think of, of every sort of UK urban fantasy that I've I've read, um, which admittedly is not many, but of, of every one that I have read, tea has been a major component yeah, um, and I do think that a large part of that is that it is a big social thing, and not necessarily in the way that perhaps people who aren't in the UK might think. Um, and I'm going to give a little sort of aside here. Um, I I'm a big fan of uh, of travel, and I've been to I go I've been to Japan a few times and one of my favorite things is that you can get this sort of this really nice uh milk iced tea uh, just in bottles and things like that um and it's it's breakfast tea but it's cold mm. and, and on the back it basically talks about the long-standing tradition of afternoon tea in the uk and the way that it, it's sort of presented is as if um, <laughs> yes, still in the UK, we will go, right, well, it's afternoon tea and we'll stop everything and get out the nice china and um, <laughs> and, and get out the sort of the, the crumpets and, and, and the, the scones and, and whatever. And obviously that's not what, what it is. I mean, I do love a, a, a nice afternoon tea, but it, it, that's afternoon tea in that way is a fancy thing. And that's, yes. there's nothing wrong with that. But there is something intrinsic about having a cuppa about yeah. popping the kettle on and sitting down and just having something warm in your hands and i think on one side it's because 
in the UK, it gets very cold. Not very, very cold, but it gets cold and miserable and wet. And sometimes it's nice to have something warm. Especially if you've just been out. You know, you've been out walking the dog or something. Coming in and turning on the kettle is part of the routine is going for the walk with the dog. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there is a ritualistic element to it, and not in a sort of, you know, a big fancy way, but as in just a, a home ritual moment, which is that when things are feeling so beyond your control, slipping back into this very standard, this very kind of daily ritual can help to soothe the nerves. Mm. Um, you know, just just sitting down and preparing tea without it being a complicated process can just sort of help you calm down and reset. Um, and I think it is just something which we see so much of just in our daily lives that it feels totally appropriate to have it in urban fantasy, which is set in the UK. Yeah, um, I agree. Fact, because if, if I'm reading reach- it and there isn't tea, I get something's wrong. <laughs> something's wrong. Is this even in the UK or I mean, this? Yeah. yeah, this isn't a British writer. So this is an American yeah. writing a British U.S. I mean, to be honest, the only consumers of tea who are greater than the UK is Ireland. So, <laughs> so there you yeah. go. Anything in yeah. Britain or Ireland, there should be tea in there. Otherwise, it's not the authentic there experience. Should be tea. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Weird sidebar. Around the British Isles. <laughs> weird sidebar. But did you know that an awful lot of Americans don't have kettles and are really stumped when they read the word kettle in in urban fantasy? Apparently, they what? they they heat up their tea either in the microwave or in a saucepan, which just seems insane. And I think it's because coffee is more commonly drunk. They they tend to drink more coffee than us. They have a lot of coffee, don't they? I'm not really a coffee drinker at all. I have one, you know, in a blue moon. And normally it's like a panic point for me. I used to have it when I was in my like law career. And it'd be like, you know, I've got an application and it needs to be done by X amount of time. And I was like, right, I'm going to have a yeah. coffee. <laughs> it's yeah. time war when the stress is coming, you know, that is the, and that was the real, you know, caffeine boost kick up the butt that I needed was a, a cup of coffee. So now I don't have that same stress. I just don't really ever have no. coffee. No, I don't really. Yeah. Um, I've got a, I've got a question for you, um, Heather, if you don't mind. Go. Um, right. Well, you, you, well, you do one of the things that you do, which, I think I might have mentioned before, but is the fact that you have all these great side characters. So if for some weird and unusual and likely reason people don't sort of connect with, say, Jinx or Lucy, there's always a great side character that they can sort of glom onto instead. Um, Mm. Have you ever considered (laughs) writing a short story or even a novella from one of those side characters' perspectives? Um always <laughs> Madeline's snickering and she knows um, why <laughs> who do you want me to write <laughs> oh do you want the list seriously <laughs> um, I'm working at the moment on an Amber and Bastion yes. story so oh, uh, <laughs> yes yes I do get tempted to write side characters quite frequently and I, I just get attached to them as I write and then I just think I just need their story to be told and already I've written um, a novella for um, Amber that's just with my um, alpha readers and beta readers at the moment and um, the feedback's been really amazing from that so that's good um so that i'm going to give to my newsletter subscribers for free uh soon i just need to get a a cover for it and then i I will be giving that away like candy um 
but um, yeah, the the uh, the thing is, I just love all of my side characters. So <laughs> which one to put the spotlight on is is hard. But Amber and uh, Bastian have been um, someone that I've been wanting to write for ages. In fact, whilst I was writing Jinx's latest um, trilogy, I was really struggling with the fact that Amber just wouldn't stop talking to me. So I was getting pages and pages of notes all about Amber's backstory and kind of how she is. Um, whilst I was trying to concentrate on Jinx, but Amber was just so distracting. Um, but Amber again is a, a character that I, I've really enjoyed writing. I've already found her voice quite different to um, Jinx and, and Lucy's. Um, she's very brusque and practical, and she's very focused on success. And one of my early beta readers said, like, she's just not as soft as um, Jinx and Lucy, and she wanted me to soften her a bit. But I I like that she is ambitious. And again, the feminist in me doesn't want her to have to soften or um, change for that. And so she is going to be unapologetically wanting to succeed in life because I think that's something that um, us as women kind of struggle with nowadays. You know, we're supposed to have it all. We're supposed to have families and careers. And, you know, it's a lot of things to juggle and focus on. Um, so Amber's not going to want a family. Um, you know, she's, she's 41 and for her that, that ship has sailed. And so her focus is, is her career. Um, and wanting to get that success and, and validation in her life from, from another avenue. Um, and I like that as well because I, I've got some friends in my life who don't have children by choice and, they often have people say, Oh, you know, when are you going to start your families? And, you know, it's, 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 oh, it's God, a, yeah. It's an, exactly. It's an unusual uh, choice, but a valid one. But people um, question it all the time. And I want Amber to be there dealing with it and telling people to do one um, because we should all have choices in our life. And I want to have, again, for my younger readers, um, characters out there that represent other choices. Yeah, I mean, that is a unique piece of sexism for women that that I have experienced many times myself because I am almost Mm. 44. And um, I've chosen not to have children because, you know, I don't have a problem with children. I just don't want any of my own. Um, And it's, Mm -hmm. it's just a case of people feel entitled, perfect strangers feel entitled to come up to me in public and ask me about it in a way that they never would to a man. And it's just like, it's so frustrating. (laughs) It is. It is a real, real strange bias that still exists in society. And I like tackling a few of those things like my books always have strong um lgbtq plus uh, representations i've got i've written in a character um in the recent jinx series who's pansexual i've had quite a few um gay and lesbian characters and i just want whoever picks the books up to have a character that they can identify with as, as near as possible yeah 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 I, I the funny thing with amber is that first of all when i was reading it amber i was like amber is not a friendly character uh, but the more we got of amber i really really liked her um parts of her reminded me of jules not gonna lie <laughs> um, just in the very unapologetic sense of i am not gonna take any crap from anyone <laughs> i know that i'm smart i know that i'm good and i know that um my you know what my time is worth 
Yes. And, you know, I, so I really, really liked her. Um, but it was kind of funny in that when, you know, obviously in the latest uh, sort of, not the latest one, but in the Lucy, uh, in Lucy's kind of uh, series, mm. uh, you have Amber sort of cropping up. And one of the things that always hit me really hard was Lucy calling. And she's like, I need you. She's like, yeah, of course. Yeah, you need my help. Because no one ever just calls to say, hi, how are you? Or anything like yeah. that. <laughs> and she, it kept happening. And I was like, for God's sake, someone call Amber and just invite her out for a drink. But I know. <laughs> this woman deserves friends. Because I was like, yes, she's allowed to be competent and, you know, someone that you can rely on and, you know, someone who you respect their time and stuff like that. But it's also nice. That doesn't mean that she doesn't deserve or want to have friendship, companionship and people who are connecting with her, not because of her skills, but because of who she is. Mm. Um, and so I really liked that. But as I was also reading it, I kind of almost felt like this was a character who was qu quietly sort of shouting out to the author, can you can you give me more than just coming into scenes to be useful? Like, yeah. let, me, let me tell some of my story. <laughs> and so the moment you said Amber Bastion, I was like, yes! <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, I'm really excited for them. That's going to be great fun. Yeah. I'm now, I'm now yeah. obviously really looking forward to that. Um, I'm going to steer us onto our main discussion. Yes. <laughs> so that we actually, I mean, we could just talk about the other realm for like the rest of the episode, actually, but I feel like we'd be advertising under false pretenses if we did that. We would be. Yes. So um, basically, uh, when I when I bullied Madeline into starting to read your books in the first place, <laughs> I'm, the, I'm that friend who comes in with this massive long list of reading material and just says, you need to read these. And poor Madeline just has to put up with it, unfortunately. <laughs> Readers everywhere, uh, writers everywhere, thank you for it anyway. It's fine. <laughs> um, but one of the things that sort of, I think, sold The Other Realm initially to Madeline was the fact it was set in the UK. And I think... From what you said, Madeline, you were sort of in the mood for something set more in the UK. Yeah, um, I was actually, because I, I was introduced to urban fantasy via Jim Butcher, mm -hmm. uh, The Dresden Files, and I really loved urban fantasy. Obviously, I'd, I'd seen a few bits and bobs which were set in the modern day with magic, but I, I hadn't engaged with urban fantasy, really. Um, and so that was my first foray. And then I was seeing a lot of urban fantasy, and... I started to get really tired of it um, mm. because it was it was set in in America, and a lot of the kind of the the, the way that the space, the tropes, etc., we used, I I just felt very disconnected from it. Mm. Um, I could still enjoy it, but it was just everything was kind of happening the same. And then obviously, I really latched on to Jules's series, um, both the Unveiled series and then the Harker and Blackthorn series, which are set in the UK, and. Part of that, I think, was just the fact that there were just these small little bits and bobs where I very comfortably felt like, yes, I can associate with this. This almost mm. feels more real to me because the this is the kind of a life which I could almost be living, except for all the, you know... <laughs> cryptids and cryptids. psychic exactly and obviously um, I'm writing a, a sort of an urban fantasy series myself and every now and again I would really struggle with it because I would just sort of I was kind of losing inspiration 
And so I really latched onto the Other Realm series for the same reason, because it felt so comfortably familiar. And mm. I think one of the biggest things for me which marked the difference was the fact that you did, and same with Jules, there were these quieter moments. Not everything was fast, not everything was action-packed. A lot of it was internal, a lot of it sort of involved little quiet social moments. Um, and for me, that's been one of the main differences I've found with American and British urban fantasy is that the British urban fantasy allows these kind of these quiet moments, uh, these moments of just, and now we're going to sit in the kitchen and drink a steaming hot cup of tea. And mm. that's fine. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. So basically, a, a casual Google on my part um, showed that many other readers had noticed that there's a distinct sort of difference between US and UK urban fantasy. And by UK, I'm sort of adding Irish urban fantasy on there as well, which is sort of up and coming. And nobody can really entirely put their finger on what that difference really is, because it's quite subtle. So I kind of curated a list of the opinions I found that I thought were the most interesting. So we're just going to sort of go through them and weigh in with our own opinions on whether they are accurate and what we what we think ourselves um just a caveat to yeah. say we're, we're not saying that one way is better than the other obviously or that u.s urban fantasy is inferior or uk urban fantasy is inferior to u.s whatever um we're just saying we've noticed some different tendencies and as always we invite our listeners to comment or correct us or um give us their opinions so please do drop us a line if you think we miss something or are completely barking up the wrong asparagus yeah nobody wants that okay so uh let's just go through them so um i'll i'll read the first one out and uh what what do you think and uh, you know heather let us know what you think and, and, and we'll discuss it so um american urban fantasy tends more towards big action movie cinematic type scenarios and uses these to drive the plot whereas british and irish urban fantasy count um uh, concentrates more on world building and story. What do you think? Um, I do think we do we do good world building. I do agree with that, um, and I think that they're they're right on the action scene side of things. What I think about American when I think of the differences myself, um, I think mm. that there's there's two things that really stand them apart for me. One is um, the action. I think American UF also has um, guns being present and a lot more prevalent. And Mm. um, that obviously makes sense because it's very present in their culture as a whole. Whereas in um, the UK, just for the American listeners, um, it's very, very difficult to get a gun. Um, And pretty much no one has them you know even the police very often don't have guns you know it's it's not something that you see in everyday life so it's not something that us us british writers write into our books so it's very rare for an issue to be solved with a kind of 
guns based showdown. Um, whereas um, I was reading um, CP Riders um, Sundance series just recently, brilliant series, absolutely fantastic humor, great pacing, great world building. Um, but you know, there are the second in command to the kind of alpha werewolf is a former assassin with a you know a sharpshooter uh, skills, and you know, she'll be set up there. And, and a few times we've had uh, or in that story there's people bursting in with guns as part of the violent action um, and you just wouldn't get that in the British side and I think maybe that de-escalates things a little bit so although we do have action sequences um, they're not necessarily as as straight up violent with, with the guns and stuff like that so I yeah. think that's quite a big difference in the, in the action the other um, second difference that I really think between UK and um, American is the humour. I think um, British humour is a little drier and I think the US humour is a little snarky. So I think that those those kind of change the tones of the books a little bit. They both have humour, they're both great, um, but I think the type of humour is slightly different. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I think um, it's. I, I think that's a point that we can we, we can, can go into into more detail in a moment, in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> um, just for our US listeners, in, in case anybody's interested, um, obviously <laughs> Heather made a really good point about guns, and here I've I've known several armed police officers, and what they have to do is they have to requalify in order to carry a gun every three months. That's how stringent it is. Um, you cannot get access to a handgun over here if you are you know not in that sort of profession um even then it's very difficult if you want something like a 12 ball shotgun um again it's a very rigorous process you're never going to walk into a shop and walk out with a shotgun the same day it's just not going to happen so that's how different it is just in case anyone's interested um i do think the person who came up with this initial opinion it there's a slight generalization but i agree there is some truth in it because i mean if you consider the sort of the climactic scenes of pretty much every book in the dresden files or um kim harrison's hollow series they're definitely mm. very visual and huge and they tend to go take up a lot of page space whereas if you think mm, of yeah. something like ben aranovich's rivers of london the actual riot takes up like two pages and it is the climactic scene <laughs> um, yeah, so definitely. maybe it's a case of there's a lot more mystery and psychological action with British urban fantasy in general rather than the, the big violent we're in, we're in for another fight kind of thing <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> okay um, alright so the next one uh, where horror is a component um, in US urban fantasy it tends to be horror derived from violence whereas in the UK uh, it tends to be via um, scenarios um, yes. I think there is something to be said about this because of course horror um, particularly if supernatural horror tends to have a metaphorical element it, it will represent what people fear and 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 kind of really there'll be an element of zeitgeist within there and i do think that heather's point about guns and gun violence and things like that will in some ways also affect the fact that um the fear of sort of violence and 
and the horror that a lot of people in America do have to live with, I think does mean that violence is a key kind of component in horror fiction in America because mm. it's representing the real fear and the real the reality of what they have to face. Uh, whereas in the UK, um, because we're not faced with the same visual horror as widely, um, the horror tends to be created in more um, sort of like built up scenarios. More psychological like horror, of, horror yeah. as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the horror of being trapped, of having your rights taken away, etc. Yeah, I think, I mean, okay, using one of, okay, so the first, the first Harker and Blackthorn book, um, they're mm. up against a non corporeal predatory creature called a Dacho, which is basically kind of like, if you've heard of old hag syndrome, it's like that, but worse. Yeah. And there's nothing physical. <laughs> there's nothing physical to fight. And I think a lot of people came back to me and they wrote to me and they said, I really enjoyed the book, but that really, really genuinely scared me. And I wasn't trying to write actual horror, but I thought actually maybe I did lean into horror a bit with that. If you mm. put it against something, I'm, okay, I'm not very good. My, my horror meter is kind of a bit broken. Yeah. In fairness. Like, <laughs> Jules, Jules doesn't have the same kind of sense of of horror that most people do. Jules will write things and I'll be like, that's scary. And she'll be like, is it? And I'm like, yes. Falling out of wells or eating your dreams or stuff is scary, Jules. But I mean, if you compare it to some, I'm trying to find a US comparison off the top of my head. And I guess um, Hayley Edwards' Black Hat Bureau series. Yeah, it's probably quite close. Mm. That has some genuinely horrific moments with some psychological horror, but there's a lot more Mm, chopped up bodies and stuff lying around as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and both are very effective, but I think it is absolutely to do with what people are actually facing in the day-to-day, which feels like it's part of the lived reality. Um, I think part of it is that urban fantasy in the UK and Ireland is heavily influenced by about 150 years or so of detective and crime fiction as well. Yeah, we've got a big history, haven't we, of yeah. that? And I, I really see a big central mystery as kind of a, a, an essential part of my urban fantasy. Like, I just think that it needs to have that way in. Yeah. But, um, you know, we, we just got... Um, we got Poirot, we've got Miss Marple, we've got Midsummer Murders. There was just so many Sherlock of that Holmes. sort of things. Exactly, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Which all have very cosy elements attached to mm. them. If you, like, compare it with Edgar Allan Poe, you know. Yeah, yes. basically it's like a murder and a cup of tea. It's not like yeah. the most British thing ever. <laughs> yeah. A murder has occurred. Let's drink some tea while we think about it. Well, um, even though mur- quietly uncovered murders during dinner parties and stuff, you know, it's really yeah. quite British, isn't it? Like, oh. Yeah, um, <laughs> I completely agree. And I also think that actually, um, obviously, with a lot of um, uh, urban fantasy, it is sort of um, shaped by the literature uh, and the mythology and folklore of the surrounding area Mm. and so that means that we get a lot of gothic elements coming into sort of urban fantasy in the UK Mm. uh, because obviously that was such a and and there's a difference again between uh, American gothic and UK gothic which that'll be a whole other episode which I'd love to explore Um, (laughs) but there's a difference (laughs) Um, sorry Jules Um, but 
there's also the fact that a lot of sort of folk tales and things like that, the fear, the creatures, the, the sort of the fairies, that it, it's quite insipid. Um, there's this creeping sense of horror. It, it's, it's actually less horror and more terror than you might get in some of the folklore or things like that um, in other parts of the world. And America, again, you've got to remember, is a very young country. Yeah, definitely. As it, as I, it I get that all the time. Um, People email me and say, like, you know, I love how you've got castles and stuff. And when I post in my kind of fan, <laughs> fan groups on Facebook about castles that I visited, they all just gush over it because it's so nice for them to see things, you know, that are all so old. I'd be like, oh, this is a 10th century castle and like, their minds are blown that there's, you know, anything yeah. that old still standing. Um, but I think that's one of the things that they love yeah, about I- it. I, I mean, I, I work in Winchester, and I've sat in I've sat in restaurants which are old buildings, and the building is older than the United States of America. Yeah. And <laughs> you just sort of think it's a very young country, and so I f- kind of feel like a lot of the the folklore and and the literature and stuff like that, which is being drawn from it, um, again, is drawing from a more violent and a more recently violent history which has kind of um, fed into the, the folk tales and the stories and the literature of of the of the country mm. yeah. folk tales are always grim aren't they like well oh, that was a pun they're actually grim yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that leads us quite nicely into the next one which is that British urban fantasy tends to dwell more on place as a significant part of the story yeah, definitely. Yes. It certainly does in mine, in fairness. <laughs> Maybe I'm biased. I, I, I have um, specific places that are real that you can actually go to, you know. So I write a, a bit in London, but predominantly in Liverpool, which is in and around where I am at the moment. And I used to work in Liverpool. So I'd be going in and out of these streets and I'd be writing these stories and I'd be like, right, I'm going to put this tea house in and I'm going to put this bar in. And and I like the idea that my fans can pop across to Liverpool and actually go on a bit of a kind of treasure trove to find all the places, you know, cited in my books. The only time I don't use real places as if it's like the bad guys hang out or something then I, yeah. I do a fake name because I don't want to tar some place with like a um, that that particular brush this, this place is evil um, but I think that you're right especially London with like Neil Gaiman and um, you know that sort of thing it, it, it's almost like it's a it's a main character in and of itself the place is, is such a part of the story um, it's and I think what's different as well is um, in more recent urban fantasy that I've read in America, um, there's small town urban fantasy, which has kind of been um, yeah. a fun thing, but it doesn't really... Obviously, we do have small towns, but we don't have small town settings so much in British urban fantasy. There's uh, some fantastic American small town vibes. So like the um, Hayley Edwards series that you kind of mentioned, the main character's set in this really small town and she's got like this kind of neighbourhood watch gang of little oh, old God, ladies who sit on their porch. <laughs> and that whole town is really small and they're all looking out for each other and it's got this lovely feel to it and it's the same with CP Rider Sundance one that's a small town but actually the, in that one that's different is the whole town is paranormal which is cool and I, I, I love that um, 
and I'm flirting with uh, writing a and um, co-writing or we're planning a co-write with a, a friend author um, this is hot off the press I'm not going to tell you her name but I'm going to do co-write with a friend and we're going to set it in a small town and it's going to be she's American so she we're going to do um, a bit in Britain and then there's going to be a bit in a small town American and we're going to have like a paranormal little small town because that'll just be really fun to write and we're hoping that between us we're going to mash kind of UF and US um, urban fantasy together and we're going to do something really um, different and fun but I, I think definitely place is such a, a central part of British stories and it is in the US but it's in a different way having those small town settings can be there's, I mean America is huge isn't it there's yeah. so many places to yeah. choose from it, it is and, and that does also mean that when you do get an urban fantasy series which is in America it does tend to just be set in one place with them not mm. moving around whereas if it's in the UK you actually have that chance for them to sort of to go to different places um, but I, I think one of the ways that sort of for me really kind of solidifies it in a more visual way um, and because mystery is has informed mystery books and, and murders and stuff like that have informed urban fantasy so much I feel like this is a good example is that the the TV series Broadchurch they obviously did a UK version and they did a US version with David Tennant playing the same character in both of them mm. and I watched the UK version and then I watched a few episodes of the US version and for me the US version felt like something had been scooped out and it was something about the fact that in the UK version, it is set in this picturesque seaside town. And the setting, I mean, they, they spend, it's called Broadchurch because this town is called mm. Broadchurch. Um, and they have spend a lot of time just looking at the scenes. And there is this sense of smallness um, and which, where on the top everyone is friendly, everyone knows everyone's business, and then the fact that deep down there is this insipid, you know, there are these lies, there is this corruption, there's there's all these kind of really nasty things happening at the same moment. The fact that everyone is watching, but then nobody is seeing necessarily, um, and that you suddenly feel it feels quite claustrophobic mm. in that you're suddenly completely surrounded by everyone one of these people is a murderer but at the same time there are too many people to just pin it down very mm, easily yeah. um so like i felt that that really kind of helped whereas in the american one there's a the space just seems so much larger and it, the, the atmosphere is completely different um and for me, that actually ruined the series because the place felt so important in the original story for me. Um, and I just didn't feel like it was there. In but the I US wonder one. if you'd have watched it one. without watching the British one, whether you would have enjoyed the American version. You know, if you hadn't already had that yeah. thought. This or, is, hmm. Yeah, this is true. I, I There were other things that I wasn't very fond of the American, so I do think that I probably wouldn't have enjoyed it as much anyway. But I do think that the place, you know, is so key. And But it might very well also be that the reason that we are saying that there's more of a sense of place is because 
we're just more familiar with the place and with the societies that kind of go around yeah. it. Um, and whether someone, you know, on the other side, will, whether we've got American sort of uh, readers of urban fantasy who are turning around saying, no, I, I, I get that sense of place when I read US stuff, but not when I read UK stuff. Mm. So it might just be perspective. Yeah. Okay, uh, the snarkiness versus uh, the dry wit banter which Heather brought up earlier. And yeah, I think, yeah. you know, there's plenty of um, US urban fantasy that has genuinely made me laugh out loud. Oh, yeah. But there's 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 little yeah. bits of British humour, and I'm, this is probably a sort of which culture are you immersed in thing. But, for example, in um, Glimmer of the Other, there's this random bit that other people might not have even found funny, but it's the bit where Jinx has been introduced to the other realm, and she finally meets her neighbour, um, knowing that she's part of the other realm, and she goes, "She's purple. You're purple." <laughs> As if you know this woman <laughs> didn't know that she's purple. Yeah. I actually had to stop the audiobook at that point because I was laughing so hard. <laughs> yeah, I think um, what's what I find with my books is a lot of the humorous bits are particularly quotable because take them out of the context of the stories yeah. and the characters; they're not necessarily funny. Like. But um, with American humour, I think you can pull lines out and laugh, you know. Um, like, um, mm. I can't remember, was it Hayley Edwards? She, um, a, a werewolf character flashed someone and she called it a full moon. And obviously that's the <laughs> werewolf yeah. and the flashing. It was just a great pun. It just worked. You know, you could just lift that straight away and everyone would laugh at it and enjoy it. Whereas I think, my, you know, my humour is is a little bit more um, subtle. It's there. And I, I do get people saying, like, laugh out loud funny. And, you know, I was in stitches. But I think it's once you um, have that context, I just think I'm not quite so quotable that you can pull a line out and, and laugh, you know. Yeah, I think I've got the same thing, really. Yeah. Because I've definitely, again, had the, yeah, this was laugh out loud funny, even while it was really disturbing. Um, but again, it's not sort of you can pull a line out and and explain it to somebody or just throw it out there and it's funny yeah it's definitely kind of moments where it's funny because we know the characters and there is this sense of like almost inside mm. joke you know if you're listening in on the outside and you just hear one moment of it it's not funny but if you've been with these people from the very start and you've and the conversation is built up to it then it's hilarious mm. You know, definitely. I mean, in Amber's new stories, if I have someone calling her and asking for help and her sighing, all of my readers who've read, you know, all 11 books and know that this happens to Amber will be in stitches. And new readers to me will be like, they'll just read it as like a, a normal line. You know, they won't know that there's anything funny about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think that's a perfect example. <laughs> um, uh, there's also a sort of quirkiness to British humour, which seems to come out of the way we speak and how that's different to the way Americans speak to each other as well. I mean, it depends where you are in the UK. For example, um, <laughs> to, to, to use a, a, a sort of a, Gla a Glaswegian sort of greeting, it's like, how are you doing, you cunt, kind of thing. That's you talking to your best mate in, <laughs> in Glasgow. But Americans who've read that sort of thing written down have gone, oh my God, what's going on? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I had, um, I used the C word in one of my books. I had um, Lucy say something like... Um, cock or cunt I'm an equal opportunity smut talker 
and um, <laughs> I had to change it because the Americans were like, "No, we we can't have see you next Tuesday in the book." Like we just we, it it's straight away like yeah. uh, <gasps> like it's not it's not acceptable. It's not okay. And all of my Aussies were like, "Keep it in, keep it in," because you know they. <laughs> They say, see you next Tuesday, like we breathe. So um, I was like, oh. And then other people saying, listen, don't change your writers for the US readers and da da da. By the end of the day, I'm not out there to offend anybody. I wouldn't want someone to pick it up and ever be offended. Um, There are swear words in my books. um, But, you know, I think that there is the difference in American culture to. uh, hearing someone say fuck to um, that word. So I, I in the end, I, I pulled yeah. it out because I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to upset people. That's not the point. Um, I found it a funny line just because of the alliteration and then I had to change it and there was no alliteration and that made me sad. Yeah. But <laughs> I, honestly, I thought it was funny, but again, um, UK, Irish background. And again, it's yeah. kind of an Irish thing as well. And it's just one of those things where it just doesn't quite carry the same connotations, possibly because, you know, it comes from Chaucer. It, it comes from the Miller's Tale. It's literally, um, I can't remember the exact line, but the, the Miller's talking about how Absalom grabs Alison, you know, by the, you know what? Mm. And uh, the word he uses is quint which is where we get the word from and it's literally just a body part like leg or arm but yes. I, I appreciate that language has obviously evolved since Chaucer's time so <laughs> it causes Indeed. more offence now it yeah. does it does and I think it's one of those things like I remember when I was younger um, it was a swear that was very shocking um, but as you know we hit the teenage years and, and people would just use it in everyday language and then it just kind of lost its shock value so but it was kind of helpful for one of my American readers to point out that it was problematic because you know that's just not what I'm about I didn't want to offend anybody just for a sake of alliteration <laughs> no, absolutely yeah um, okay another difference we'll try and get through these last two relatively quickly so we don't keep you forever Heather although we would try Um, (laughs) uh, British urban fantasy (laughs) may be set in a specific town or city but the series rarely stays there for its entirety basically we tend to branch out into our our vast countryside a lot yeah yeah I think that is true but there are books um, that that that, that, for example are set in London and that largely stay in London but I think that they they are few and far between. Most of us might have a bit in London and then we go to the countryside and then we go to Manchester or Liverpool or something. But um, I think when people think British UF, a lot of people do think London. And, you know, I've had a few times people say, I want Brit UF, but I don't want London. And that's when I get recommended. People are like, she's in Liverpool. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think... For the majority of people, they do think London. But even if the main book is set, the majority in London, we do tend to move out to the countryside. Because the thing is, for us, you know, it's it's not really too far to get to the countryside from London. You know, it's only an hour or so when you're out in lots of rolling fields and things like that. So it's it makes sense for us to have a bit of a mix and match. Yeah. And also that's where the, the true yeah. folk horror yeah. happens, really. So. <laughs> Yeah. If you're adding that in, yeah. it's quite handy. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, uh, the last one. Uh, the difference in the way that US culture and British-Irish culture perceive cities. 
this is a tricky one, isn't it? Because um, mm. it could be the root of a lot of that indefinable difference culture-wise between the US and the UK. So, I mean, city is perceived differently on each side of the Atlantic. So in America, you've got this comparatively young culture, young country, and there's a mixture of sort of safety um, and opportunity and betrayal, you know, the old sort of the streets are paved with gold versus a largely immigrant community and its industrialization inception. And then in the UK, we've got this really, really vast, really long history of cities um, where some of the worst stuff actually happened in cities. And we've kind of been conditioned almost to distrust them. We've got all this huge body of Victorian literature, which basically says, you know, even if you haven't read much of it, it's filtered into other things like Ina Blyton, where it's like, it's not healthy to live in a city, go and live in the countryside kind of thing. So we sort of eye them with distrust, even though our cities generally are, are a fair bit cleaner than they were in the Victorian times, for example. Yeah, the, the establishment of the rural fantasy was so complete in the Victorian period that I don't think it's ever truly left. And I think that we also see more of it because particularly at the moment, um, I'm seeing it in a lot of UK trends, there is this new pull towards environmentalism. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so I think the mix between the rural fantasy, environmentalism, and also, you know, cost of living crisis has seen a rise in people interested in things like cottage core um, and living sustainably, etc. And all of this stuff pulls us towards the countryside. Um, and the moment we get into the countryside and you add elements of mystery, that tradition of things like Poirot, uh, of midsummer murders, etc., mm. pulls us either to small, quaint, but slightly creepy yeah. villages, um, <laughs> uh, or old houses and castles, etc. Mm. So, you know, we, we either get the hot fuzz kind of situation. Yeah, great movie. <laughs> or, or it's the, you know, the, the sort of the Poirot sort of situation. I, I just think that it's kind of inevitable. You, you can't sort of escape it. Really. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the, the final thing just to wrap this up is that it's kind of a bit subjective as well. It's what do you classify as urban fantasy? Because mm. while it's odd to bring this point up last after looking at the differences in opinion, there's a lot of crossover between urban fantasy and other types of fantasy. So paranormal romance, portal fantasy, speculative history, etc. Mm. So urban fantasy can be a bit of an yeah. umbrella term. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, with me, I, I do tend to keep it quite broad. I think it is literally just magic in some form in modern times. That's all I kind of think. Everything that else can fall under that. So I kind of think, you know, paranormal romance. Um, the difference between paranormal romance for me and urban fantasy is obviously the romance element. And uh, An urban fantasy book doesn't need to have any romance at all to be an urban fantasy they frequently do um, but the point is that you could take that whole romance out of the storyline and that mystery would still stand by itself whereas yeah. the paranormal romance obviously needs to have romance it needs to hit the romance beats um, and uh, romance is of course very formulaic just by its its nature um, I'm not saying that as a bad thing but it, it is and I think one of the things that's great about 
paranormal romance is because they've got this strict structure of the romantic beats that they have to go through they can really enjoy the characterizations a lot more because everybody knows the kind of rise and fall of the story and what's going to happen so they can do really good characterizations whereas urban fantasy doesn't have the same uh, beats although we've got you know you're going to need action at this point in the book type feel um, it's not it's not the same strictness but I, I really think any sort of contemporary fantasy set in our own world um, falls under urban fantasy yeah yeah I do feel like the one of the big defining things of urban fantasy though is the mystery element mm, yeah um, and it's one of the things where we can sort of actually we can move things away from it being sort of magic realism, portal fantasy, stuff like that, to actually being urban fantasy. So you could have a story about, uh, you know, someone who is living in a in a haunted mansion or has discovered a, a strange creature or something like that in the modern day. But if there's no mystery element to it, it won't feel like urban fantasy. It'll just feel like a fantasy story, mm-hmm. you know. Um Whereas urban fantasy does have to have that mystery. It almost always involves a murder of some kind or a death of some (laughs) kind. Um, And there's also now something very particular, which is the style, which has come out of that, um, which we then start to see being introduced into other pieces of work so that even if they're set in the past, etc., or they're set in another world, they have an urban fantasy vibe. Mm -hmm. Just because of the style of and style of the writing, etc., yeah. um, it it kind of feels like urban fantasy has got like um, a focus point, which people anyone could pick up a book and be like, "Yes, this is very clearly urban fantasy," and most people would agree with it. And then it has things on the other side where you pick up a book and one person would say, "This is urban fantasy," and another person would say, "No, it isn't. <laughs> this is paranormal crime." I do kind of draw the line when people say that S.J. Mass's Crescent City series is urban fantasy. in my opinion it's portal fantasy but then Mm -hmm. in fairness I do shell wardship down as dystopian fiction so maybe I'm the issue here (laughs) (laughs) I think it is to be fair (laughs) what I find is urban fantasy isn't really a household term you know so when people say to me what do you write I always just say you know kind of like Twilight and Harry Potter <laughs> I was really like oh you know because those things that you know people know what they are and you know they'll know that I mean magic and vampires in modern times um, but most people I think don't really know what urban fantasy is um, it's not you know it's not like romance or even paranormal romance like it's just not as well known as its own genre, which is kind of crazy because it's been going on for ages. Um, and yeah, it just doesn't seem, when I talk to normal, normal people, non, non urban <laughs> fantasy readers or writers, it's just not, not a term that they're familiar the with. Normal yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just not a term that, that's, that's common to them. You know, everyone knows fantasy. Um, yeah. but if I say urban fantasy, they're like, what's up? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, just a couple of examples from each of us about our favourite, hopefully indie urban fantasy, although if you've got a series that you absolutely love that isn't indie published, then go for it. Um, either UK or US, whichever. 
Oh, I've got so many. I know. I'm. I'm going to say that the couple. I'm. I'm trying to read more indie urban fantasy personally because I actually find it kind of scratches the itches that the more um, big five published stuff doesn't. It isn't really allowed to. Obviously, if I'm talking big five, I love Shauna Maguire's Encrypted series, um, which mm. is yeah, just you know it's genius the way she set it up in my opinion obviously i liked Haley edwards black hat bureau i love brogan mm. thomas even though it really wouldn't normally be my sort of thing <laughs> oh, i it, love brogan it, it's very very dramatic and very emotional but you cannot it help is. but care about the character <laughs> such a roller coaster ride her books are so amazing they're just they just grab you by the throat and you just can't stop reading because you desperately want there to be a happy outcome soon <laughs> yeah. please because it's killing me um but I, I know what you mean I've got a very strong visual in my head of just reading a book and there's a hand <laughs> coming out of the book literally just yeah, holding that is, you that is exactly what it feels like <laughs> her books are so um, so well written and she has dyslexia so it takes her a lot of time to write a book a book is a real labour of love for her you know and um, she's not someone that you know like me who can churn out lots of words in a short period of time and um she just gets such emotional depth that I just can only aspire to one day you know I just think she does a great job um so another one of my favorites at the moment is Loretta Hignett um she is blazing an absolute trail in the um, indie urban fantasy scene at the moment and um she's a really fast writer and it's her kind of full-time job and um she just sits and, and writes these books so she's written a bunch of series uh recently one which is just the best title of a series ever which is oops i ate a vengeance demon <laughs> where, um the whole kind of premise is that someone um eats a haunted banana and then she gets possessed by this Pontianak <laughs> right so like and that just shows straight away the humour do you know what I mean like if you yeah. if, if that appeals then you're in because that's just it, it's so that they're so funny if it appeals. oh yeah I know I did it on purpose <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah it, her books are really uh, humorous and she always has you know we're talking about environmental messages and stuff like that she um she occasionally gets a bit on soapbox, which I approve of. Um, and it's, it's messages about feminism and equality and environmentalism. And there's always like a little bit of a heart in there. Um, that's a, a you know, a positive, affirming, uh, message, which I always appreciate. If I, if I get some sort of kind of moral field and I really enjoy that, that little bit more, it gives it that kind of edge. Um, um, these guys are relatively uh, new urban fantasy writers and I feel like because we, we've been talking about Americans we should talk about an American so um, L.A. McBride is one of my other um, favourites and she uh, writes uh, what I love about the series is her uh, main character is a seamstress and she has a costume shop where she does like Halloween costumes and all sorts of fun things and um, in her more recent book there's a, a scene where she's um killing someone with knitting needles and like it's just so fresh and fun and different and again there's there's great humor in it um and she's writing now a story about a goat shapeshifter <laughs> and i just love it i just love it and this goat shapeshifter has um sticky fingers so she's been a pickpocket and she's got this kind of really fun backstory um and you know 
she's just off the wall crazy and funny and like I just love I, I just love that elements where I've got humour in there with the action and normally um, quite fast paced stories but with with that kind of feel good element you know I love when you pick you put that book down and you just feel like oh, that was amazing yeah yeah absolutely yeah I've also recently really enjoyed C. N. Rowan's first book oh yes novella yeah well. I've been trying to get Madeline to read yeah. that as well Chris's book I've just made my husband yeah. read it um, and he because my husband reads a lot of urban fantasy mostly through me forcing him to um, but I said you've got to read uh, Chris's C.N. Rowan's uh, book because I just wanted to see what his thoughts were because Chris's book is um, dark and gritty and then there's a lot of humour in there which he calls dad humour um, which makes me laugh. Um, but it's really unique in that it's set in France because that's where he lives. And he's done a lot of research into the history of the area. And what I really love about Chris's work is he has these flashbacks back in time because his main character is immortal. So he's he's been around, well, he's been around for like 800, 900 years. So you get these flashbacks and I normally despise flashbacks. <laughs> it's one of my things that I really hate. And when I first flicked and it said back in like 1100s, I was like, oh, and then I love, and then I loved it. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. And then the flashbacks became so essential and so clever. And I thought, oh, you're a clever man. There's a reason why those was. And I started look, looking forward to the flashbacks because they were so interesting and um, such a such a unique story. And I just, I, yeah, as you can tell, I can rave about it all day long. I really loved it. Yeah. I've started it and I've I'm very much pulled into it already so um, I'm, I'm really really enjoying it you won't um, believe who the bad guy is not to spoil it for you but oh that was a good <laughs> one <laughs> yeah that was a bit of a twist it was a good one um yeah um I'm really really enjoying it so far um I think in terms of sort of favourites obviously we're, we're going to be uh, sort of recommending you in a minute oh thank Heather. you um but um, <laughs> uh, I, I have to, and I'm sorry, Jules, for embarrassing you. Um, but you know, I have to say, Harker and Blackthorn. I've indoctrinated um, you. <laughs> You've indoctrinated me. But then, to be honest, I am your quote-unquote ideal yes. reader. Um, just because I love the setting, um, I love it, it. It feels close to home. Um, I obviously love the characters. Uh, the slow burn um, relationships and very much in particular the use of folklore and mythology and how it's balanced between um, what was and what can now be explained with science and how there's this kind of this open openness to interpretation and obviously the, the found family feel with this really interesting dynamic between the characters so um everyone all of our listeners know very very well how i feel about harker and blackthorn um and the unveiled series so i just think that there's so much brilliant urban fantasy there out is. there and a lot of it does get missed because it is indie so it is worth kind of taking a step away from only looking at the major kind of publications and particularly if you're thinking I'm a bit tired of urban fantasy trust me if you want something set somewhere else if you want something which feels a bit different 
you know, we've got you, we've got you. <laughs> I think that's an interesting thing as well because um, I've had friends um, trying to get traditionally published with Urban um, Fantasy and the kind of resounding message from the publishing houses is, bar the odd exception, you know, Urban Fantasy is done and they're not really interested yes. in getting Urban Fantasy. And, you know, it is... Well, I mean, I I didn't really um, query much because I, I'm not very good at rejection. So I I applied to a couple of agents and got my nose, and then I thought, well, fine, I'll just do this myself. Um, and for me, becoming an indie writer was a very much a conscious choice. You know, I didn't do hundreds of queries and get knocked back. I did five and then made the conscious decision, do you know what, this path isn't for me. I don't want to be traditionally published. I want to be indie published. Yeah. And a part of that is that I am um, a bit of a control freak, but I wanted to say what my covers were. I wanted to pick my cover designer. I wanted to be one doing the social media and the ads and all those things that come with being an indie author. You know, it's not just writing books it's a whole uh business package and um yeah I, I love it it is the best thing in the world that i ever decided to do and i've i've done i have got an agent now and i've got some um translations in the works with um the german wing of uh, penguin random house which is hain so i am working on translations and things like that with um you know the big publishing houses but I'm still retaining the rights to everything myself for um, these countries because I I love doing it myself and I love being indie. And sometimes people look look down on you because you're indie. And, um, you know, when I go to parties and people say, what do you do? You're an author. And they'll say, oh, who are you published by? And I'll say, I'm self-published. And they're straight away kind of like, oh, right. You know, so you're not a serious writer then. And you're like... I'm a six-figure author. <laughs> I am. I'm a proper writer. Like, <laughs> it's a real job. Absolutely. I mean, both Madeline and I start. The, Madeline and I met because we shared a publisher <laughs> originally, yeah. um, and you know we're both hybrid authors. But I have to say, for mm-hmm. urban fantasy, I, I remember just having a casual conversation with an agent at a, sort of a writing, basically symposium or whatever. And she was just saying it, you know, we cannot sell urban fantasy to publishers. They're not interested. No. And I just said, that is just so weird because there is a huge audience for urban fantasy. It's more voracious than ever. And they tend to be yeah. whale readers who read hundreds of books a year. So how are publishers not managing to sell urban fantasy to this huge audience? Yeah, it's crazy. I think it's just a, a, a kind of a, a policy decision that they don't want to go there. Um, well, it's funny you should say about them being whale readers because that is true. And what I found in the um, indie community is there's a real um, spirit of community amongst the indie writers that we all kind of comment on each other's posts. We share when everyone's got a sale or, you know, because the thing is, mm. these readers, they read more books than I can write ever. So <laughs> sure, let you know, read my friend's <laughs> books because I've read them and they're, they're astonishingly good. So of course I'm going to share when she has a new release or has a sale or whatever. And it just gives this lovely community feel that I'm so proud to be a part of and um, you know people can look down on me for being indie all they want but I would not have it another way I'm so proud of you know the success that we're all bringing together working together and you know I feel in some ways 
that um, the community that I've joined is one of the best things about publishing. You know, it's it's just been such a beautiful uh, road. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, completely. Sorry, I've got off track. Well, uh, no, no, not at all. Um, but uh, we are coming to the end of our episode. Uh, before we kind of wrap things up and get into the recommendations, um, Heather, how can people stalk you? Oh, I'm ev- not yeah. in real life. Please I'm not in real life. For your address, <laughs> but uh, online, I'm, I'm, I'm just absolutely <laughs> everywhere. Um, I at the moment I've I've got a Patreon um, account, so that's where if you really want to stalk me, that's where you really want to be because um, I do live Q and A sessions, I do Zoom chats with my patrons. Um, depending on your kind of payment level, you can get a character named after you and be in my books. Um, and I'm there every day, pretty much. I post um, chapters in advance. I post my audiobooks, I post character art. Sometimes I post just like a day in the life of me and I tell them what I've done and just give them a run a run through, just a kind of a real behind the scenes look. Like today I've been working on my adverts and I've been making these graphics and I'll share, you know, cover reveals and things like that. So my Patreon is um, a really lovely community. It's only small at the moment. There's about 50 people on there, but it's just, it's a lovely uh, place. And I say, if you want to, slice of hanging out with me my most stalkerish fans are there um, apart from that I've got a Facebook page um, where obviously I normally I post daily um, but if you want to chat and post your own things then I've got a group as well called um, Heather Harris's Other Realm and you can obviously um, post I always have memeish Mondays where I'm asking people to post funnies and so there's a lot of humour there. And we have Good News Sundays where people post about what's made them smile that week. And just the whole community there is, it's a real positive uh, feel. And, you know, I'm more than happy for people to recommend other authors in there. Um, and again, I'm there several hours a day, probably <laughs> when I should be writing. But yes, I, I love my fans. So I'm always hanging out at the other realm. Um, I'm also on Instagram. But I'm there less frequently, maybe once or twice a week. I just don't tend to think of Insta as, as much, whereas Facebook is definitely my main medium. And I am also on TikTok and I go through waves of TikTok where you can watch me make a fool of myself um, for many, many hours of videos. And then I'll kind of fall off the TikTok wagon for a while and I won't do any um, videos for a couple of months. Normally when I'm in writing phases, when I'm just too busy to uh, do additional things like TikTok videos. I love them because I could just be really silly there's lots of silliness there like me dressing up with my dressing gown and pretending that I'm being um, abducted by vampires yeah there's just lots of silly stuff there um so if you want to just laugh at me then that's that's the place to be um yes it really depends what where you know what you want out of your interaction with me um if you want to actually have a good chat then I say Facebook's the best one to kind of come along because I always um I always chat to my fans in there Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. Um, and it will come as no surprise, obviously, uh, that we are going to be uh, recommending Heather's work. Now, we have already wrecked the Other Realm and the Other Wolf series, uh, but we can reiterate that you definitely should be checking those out. And if you have, of course, then Challenge of the Court and Betrayal of the Court are the next go-to so make sure that you 
now and revival of the court is out soon <laughs> as soon apparently. as possible yes yeah so i'm gonna revival of the court at the moment has a set uh, a release date of the 15th of june but i'm actually going to bring it forward to the 8th of june as long as my pro frida can um do her final pass before then so that's my plan so um in a few uh, short days, 10 days or less, all three of the new uh, trilogy will be out and available for reading in Kindle Unlimited. I'm still working on the audiobooks for, um, well, I should have my narrator is, for um, Betrayal and Revival, but those will also be coming. The audiobook of Challenge has um, just been released on Audible and it's available on Chirp and a few other retailers as well. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's been lots of fun. Yeah, we, we've... And thank you to all our... Oh, sorry. No, no, no. I was just going to be a bit gushy again. So um, maybe it's best I don't. <laughs> I'm getting bored of it. It's like, no, we were so excited about it, etc. Um, which we were. And it, it's been great. You've been a yes. brilliant guest. If you ever want to come back, we'd love to have you. Ah, thanks. So wait, wait until after Amber series and we can chat about Amber then. Yes. She's getting a series. Oh my gosh. She's going to get a whole series. Yeah, she's fab. Yes! (gasps) (laughs) I think you've probably just made yours as well. You know you've made mine. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, guys, we will say thanks very much for listening and we will catch you guys next week. Thanks and goodbye. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.